Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It's delightful to be here on the occasion of knowing that we have upstairs David Hockney's new sequence of portraits. So what I thought I'd do today is just talk very simply in three sections. I thought we'd look first at a few examples of Hockney's portraiture. Portraiture, as you know, has always been central to his thinking and work. I can't give you that survey, others will do that. But I thought we'd pick a few and just compare and contrast some of those. Then I thought we'd look at other examples of contemporary portraiture, particularly contemporary portraiture working in different media and in different approaches, different techniques, different, not just more than style, different, different ways of thinking about portraiture. And then I thought we'd come back to thinking about contemporary portrait painting and focus back in on painting and think about the importance of uh, work there, changes, developments, and Hockney's uh, place, if you like, alongside other uh, great artists. So if we, um, let me just get this right. If we start with an absolute classic, we're starting with Mr. and Mrs. Clark and Percy, the cat, and as you'll know, this is a portrait, double portrait, of Ozzy Clark and Celia Birtwell, pictured in their West London uh, house. It is, in many ways, a very much a West London portrait. It's a period piece in the sense that we're looking at a period uh, decor. We're looking at two figures as designers, fashion designers, who are very current in that period of the late 60s and into the 70s. But we're also looking at something that, of course, is stately, is something that uh, Hockney is very aware that his drawing on genre of a double portrait that goes right back to the Renaissance, and that Hockney's thinking has always been about an interchange between his own ideas, his own explorations, and what he understands and knows extremely well from the past. There's a favorite quote of uh, Hockney's that I've often um, come back to, in which Hockney says, all art is contemporary. And when he says that in his provocative way, all art is contemporary, he means, of course, that all art from historic periods, all art from previous periods that has survived, is with us now. It's part of the contemporary scene. It's part of anything that we choose to look at, be it Raphael, be it Titian, uh, be it Rembrandt. It's part of something contemporary. But of course, I always think that you could really reverse that quote. And certainly in the case of Hockney, say that really all contemporary art is part of the past. And certainly when I think of Mr. and Mrs. Clark and Percy, I think of a great double portrait. And there are others uh, in that period. Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi is another of the great double portraits um, from this period. The other comparison, just a little bit later, of double portraits was this lovely one, famous because uh, it's his parents, but also famous because it's been in the Tate collections for many years. And it's very, although very formal, it catches something that we'll perhaps come back to and think about, which is the way in which Hockney can combine something quite formal, quite singular, very focused, with something that is also personal. 
This is, you know, this is his parents. His father and mother were both very, very important, influential on Hockney. His father hugely interested and engaged in art. His father is pictured here going through a catalogue, uh, which would have been quite typical for him that he would have been reading. Um, both of them, and this is really a very important thing, I, I reckon, that both of them were extraordinarily sympathetic to the young Hockney uh, at the Royal College, at the point at which he comes out as gay. Uh, it wasn't a great public declaration because, as you'll know, Hockney is gay in a period in which it is illegal. Uh, the Wolfenden Report and the change in legislation in this country didn't happen until the later 60s. Hockney's at Bradford College of Art and then at the Royal College in the early 60s. But his parents, as very um, definite uh, liberals, uh, in some ways anti-establishment, uh, very independent thinkers, his father not only independent, but also very determined. There's an, some of you will know there's an earlier portrait that Hockney makes of his father, in which actually you can see in the edge of the portrait there's a small mirror and the mirror was there on a side angle so that his father could watch what his son David was doing while he was making the portrait of him. So they were, they were close in on uh, some of what David was doing, particularly his father. Uh, his mom, mother immensely sympathetic, and of course there are later portraits of her towards the end of her life, and it's very much part of the present project here at the Royal Academy uh, that um, uh, siblings and uh, cousins and others uh, appear. But let's just carry on thinking about different aspects of Hockney's portraits. Here's Celia Birtwell again, very slightly later in 1980, and I wanted this because it's absolutely of a kind, uh, or rather it focuses in on that graphic element that was always so important in, in remains so important in Hockney's work. Uh, he's a consummate draftsman, uh, was from the beginning, carried on making the most wonderful portrait drawings at different points. Um, this is a lithograph, but the sense of Matisse and a sort of Matisse approach uh, is sort of drawn into the way he makes the work. Uh, there's a sort of luxuriance of style and approach. And yet, it's Celia. His, it's his great friend Celia. Uh, and of course, she reappears, as we'll find her uh, later on. Let's find another contrast by media, not difficult to do. And here we have one of the classic uh, photo collages. And many of you will know that, that Hockney was always experimenting um, with media and technique. So that's same time that he was thinking about drawing and recognizing Renaissance models, he was also wanting to think, of course, later on about perspective and questions of perspective. But here, wanting to exploit what you could do with Polaroids or photographs and how you could join up different ways of, of looking. These, for a period, were sort of known by him as joiners, as joined up images. It's a poolside scene. Uh, the whole Californian reference point from when Hockney not only traveled to America, but most particularly to the West Coast um, in the 60s, was something that's not only remained with him, it's part of his life, uh, it's where he is a great deal of his life and where his work is mostly carried out uh, in the present period. And the sort of, again, the ambience of a poolside scene can be caught in different ways. It emerges in great paintings. 
Um, but in this photographic portrait, uh, we're simply allowed to meet uh, a young friend uh, on the poolside, uh, naked, with this wonderful sort of sense of design, but the design enhanced with how he's using uh, the photographic images. And if we think of multiplicity, and this question of multiplicity, uh, I would claim is very important in Hockney, um, we can go on to look at a particular project that, again, some of you will know from 2000, when Hockney, with other artists, was drawn into a project in the National Gallery. And uh, what Hockney wanted to do was to allow his own particular admiration uh, for Angres. So these are, this, is, this work is properly called 12 Portraits After Angres in a uniform style with, of course, the pun. Um, and it is some of the front of house staff, uh, the warders um, from the National Gallery. And he was using, at this point, I mean, he was deliberately using um, a glass as a way of wanting to focus his eye. Y you'll remember that, that Hockney investigates the whole question of how artists in 17th century uh, earlier and then later uh, were using lenses and glasses as a way of either projecting something they wanted to record or as a way of focusing their own eye into looking into their subject in a particular way. Um, but I think whatever the lens question, I always feel with these, really what it's about is Hockney meeting people that in this case were not close friends, but people he liked and people he probably admired a bit. I think uh, Hockney's always been one of those who absolutely understood that everybody working in an art gallery has a place in making it a good place for everybody to visit and use. So I sense that he wanted different characters, and that idea that it's a uniform style is, of course, a way of um, emphasizing the differences in character, in personality, in the look. And now that takes us, of course, very much to the essence of what is portraiture. The claim of portraiture is that we don't just get what somebody looked like. We have the ability, perhaps, as viewers, to understand who they are or who they were. Now, that is much debated, uh, much discussed. The purpose of a portrait gets into that. And the difference, if you like, between personal portraits, portraits made by artists of those they know or those they love or those that they are close to, and portraits made in a different sense for the public, commissioned or created uh, as a way of honoring somebody, that difference, that line between personal and public portraits is something not only that Hockney, I would say he blurs it. I mean, most of his work is private portraiture. It, it's portraits of affection uh, rather than portraits of honor because he's not been minded uh, generally to take commissions. Hockney's not a man for commissions. He's an artist of his own determination. And he's also economically been, I think, very keen and determined to work his life and work, um, if you like, the way in which he exhibits as something that then allows him to undertake his own project, his own work. However, perhaps we might think about whether part of what happens in Hockney's portraiture 
is that this line between private and public is in some ways just being worked on, just being blurred. They're generally private portraits. These ones, of course, are not private. These are people he didn't know. These are ones part of a project with the National Gallery. And yet in that, in that line, in that difference between private and public, we've got something perhaps that'll help us in that question of is, is a portrait something that really allows us to understand somebody, not just to see them, not just to look at them, not just to know their likeness or their look, but to think about who they are, who they've been, what they achieved, and much else. So what I'd like to do now is, as I said in the second section, um, think about some rather different kinds of portraits. And I wanted to start with a very different kind of portrait. And this is David um, Beckham, portrayed by Sam, then Sam Taylor Wood, now Sam Taylor Johnson. This was, this is a commissioned portrait for the National Portrait Gallery. And I was there with the trustees when they had the discussion, as they would with each subject or potential subject, as to whether that person was somebody of long-term interest. The trustees of the National Portrait Gallery actually commissioned very few, maybe five or six uh, full portraits, that is, painted or sculpted or digital portraits each year. The trustees determine the subject. They then delegate to the director, as it was myself. Um, previously, they, they delegate the choice of artist. Um, it's a very difficult debate for the trustees, and certainly in the case of Beckham, uh, it wasn't an easy debate about whether Beckham would or wouldn't be somebody remembered in 50 years' time, and probably a difficult question, too, as to what he might be remembered for. Um, at the time, this is some years ago, um, Beckham had, although uh, already become a fig figure perhaps beyond football, because in a sense, being captain of England, I'm afraid, isn't enough. Um, you can be captain of England, but it doesn't mean you get commissioned your portrait for the National Portrait Gallery. Um, there has to be something that's likely to be of a greatness and achievement, uh, something additional. Anyway, I was pleased that the trustees did decide that Beckham was a worthy subject. But I, frankly, I couldn't imagine um, a painted portrait of Beckham that seemed too still. I couldn't imagine uh, a sculpted portrait, Beckham kicking a football. It sort of seemed way too literal. Um, and I remembered that Sam Taylor Wood had made a wonderful piece. Um, it was her sort of pieta with um, uh, Robert Downey Jr., in which she had draped the actor Robert Downey Jr. over her own lap. He was, uh, it was a sort of reverse Pieta figure. In other words, it was a work about masculinity. And that idea that masculinity could be the subject became the discussion with Sam Taylor Wood. And when I rang her up and asked her whether she'd consider making a portrait of Beckham, she said, uh, it's impossible. He's ubiquitous, he's everywhere. How can you possibly uh, capture this man? But luckily, she rang me back two days later and said, I've had one idea. It's Beckham asleep. He'll be very deep asleep for quite a long time. And that's it. It'll be a video. And of course, he sleeps very sweetly for an hour and six minutes uh, in this video. 
It was created on a single take. It was filmed in Madrid when he was working for Real Madrid. Uh, it was in an afternoon when they'd had a morning training session, so it was siesta time. It was filmed in a hotel. There was just Sam there with a camera and a single light. And I always actually could know exactly when it was, in, at which point it was in the sequence because he actually shunts down the bed very slightly over the hour and six minutes. Um, but he does indeed sleep sweetly. Um, and of course, what's surprising about it is a very, very simple point about a portrait, not shocking, but it's just surprising because we don't see people asleep. I mean, we see our partner, if we have a partner, we see children asleep. We might see our parents asleep, um, but we don't generally see other people asleep. And although there's a great nod to Andy Warhol and his sleep film here, um, the idea that you could be that intimate, that close uh, with somebody and in, in a sense examine them over an hour uh, was just a very lovely, uh, lovely idea. So let's carry on thinking about portraiture in different ways. And here's a work again, some of you may know. This is Mark Quinn's uh, work entitled Simply Self. Um, this, as many of you will know, is made up entirely of his own blood, frozen, uh, kept in uh, liquid uh, at a below uh, freezing point um, temperature. It doesn't actually look like this anymore because over time the blood has darkened. And although it has to be looked after very carefully, it's in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery now. Uh, and it's one, it's a work that Mark Quinn has made, a single self-portrait head, molded from his own head with his own blood, uh, one every five years. I knew that previous works had gone to collections outside the country. And in the mid-2000s, I just thought that one of them should stay in this country. It was, I have to say, a very particular discussion with the trustees uh, about the longevity, about how long could this last. And there was great discussions about how blood could be preserved forever. Um, actually, there was one trustee who got excited about the thought that maybe his children should be bound into some kind of contract uh, to supply blood to the future. But I, <laughs> I didn't think we should pursue that. Um, and everybody, had, we had to do technical reports uh, that indicated, of course, what you do if there's a power cut. But the essence of this is, again, very simple. The essence is we're seeing Mark Quinn, or rather we're seeing a simulacrum of Mark Quinn. We're seeing the shape of his head then, not now, then. And we're seeing it in a substance, his own blood, that could, no other substance perhaps, could have the same power of the morbid, of the sense of the deathly that is in life. And that idea that Perhaps self-portraits, more than any other manner of art, are morbid. They are things of the contemplation of vanitas that life passes, uh, is particularly strong and powerful in this work. It, I have watched many people uh, in the portrait gallery rooms spend time with it. I've seen them approach it, have no idea what they were coming to, and then begin to realize and you see them becoming more and more fascinated and focused uh, in on this work. 
Let's continue in our contrasts. This another commissioned, so whereas the Quinn was not commissioned, it's a project, uh, part of a project of the artists. The Michael Craig Martin of Zaha Hadid, sadly now, of course, the late Zaha. Um, this was commissioned. The trustees were very clear that here was a great architect of <clears throat> outstanding international importance. When I spoke to her, she was very uncertain, not so much about being portrayed, but about whether or not she might be in a traditional painting or she might be in something very contemporary in terms of its genre or its approach. And I knew that Michael Craig Martin was an artist uh, as he is with a huge interest in architecture <clears throat> and engagement in design. And I knew that he admired Zaha Hadid very greatly. So I brought them together for a discussion. Um, that was fine, and he determined what you can only see a little bit of, because this is a still from a digital portrait. In the final work, all of these colors change all of the time, very slowly, forever. The work has a little computer in the back, and you look at it at one moment, and you get one set of colors, you turn around, you come back, and it's changed, and it just softly changes very slowly, and it never, never repeats. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful, simple idea, but I have to say, I value particularly uh, an email I received. It took some time, perhaps 18 months. I received about halfway through an email from Zaha Hadid in which he just said, Sandy, this must stop. And I think I knew enough in my period at the Portrait Gallery that sitters were not always the best judges of their portraits. So I ignored her email. And Michael Craig Martin carried on. And when we got to the launch, I had a note from her office that I would perhaps meet her from her car, which I did. I was happy to do so. And as she got out of the car, she said, I want you to know I am entirely unreconciled to this portrait. <laughs> so I could only say the obvious thing. I could say, well, Zaha, I can only hope over time that your opinion of it will begin to match the opinion of many others who've already seen it and admire the portrait as much as they admire you. Um, we had a lovely evening. We had speeches. We had words. It was a good celebration. And at the end of the evening, um, perhaps rather naively, I said to her assistant, I said, it's been a great evening, but I'm just sorry that Zaha doesn't like the portrait. And he looked at me as if I really was perhaps a little bit simple, and he said, uh, if Zaha really didn't like the portrait, um, I wouldn't be here this evening, and nor would she, and if I may say so, nor would you. <laughs> and I think in that, I realize something much more important, which is that for many people, portraits are not easy. I mean, Zaha Hadid is somebody who was rejected for about half her professional career. She was regarded as too experimental, too innovative. People didn't think you could build her buildings. And she had a very, very hard time. Gradually, that changed. And towards the last part of her career, she was chased by a president from around the world. 
But in that, in a sense, it shouldn't be a surprise to, to us that somebody might feel ambivalent about how they're seen. And if you like, the question we can come back to, which is the degree to which, even in a digital portrait, which in my mind portrays a kind of creativity, even in that form, it's a fix. A portrait has become something at a particular time. The last portrait um, that actually I commissioned uh, while I was there at the National Portrait Gallery um, was someone who was very elusive, very um, hard to pin down, of uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. The reason he was so elusive was not just that he uh, lives in, works in Boston at MIT, where he is based now. It was much more that what emerged was that over the years, his image, uh, photographic images of him, had been taken by others and had been used on the web and had been allied to different causes, even charities, but things that he had not agreed to things that he hadn't actually signed up to. So he was very cautious about whether his image should become a portrait. He wasn't saying no, he just wouldn't say yes. And actually with some subjects for commission portraits, more often than you might expect, that was a, a caution. Anyway, gradually through, well, greatly through the good offices of his wife, Rosemary, uh, who, as a good partner, uh, made him realize that history really might be calling now in terms of a long-term view or a view that could, if you like, play between the past and the contemporary, as I've already described. We started a discussion, and what emerged was something I began to like very much, which was that taking someone who had invented the most uh, ethereal, the most hard to capture uh, thing, the World Wide Web, where is it? Um, and to get that, capture that person in bronze, in sculpture, might be the right thing. So Sean Henry, who's made this piece, this is two-thirds life-size. Uh, when you meet it in the portrait gallery, it has a very, very nice play on scale. As you look distantly across the room, you don't quite know what you're meeting. So it's not small like a maquette, but equally it's not full size like a waxwork. Uh, it's very, very cleverly in between. It's painted bronze. And what you're seeing, which I also like, is a sense of, this came out of conversation between subject and artist. What you're seeing is Tim Berners-Lee as he spends his time, which is physically traveling the world. He may have invented the web, but to have the discussions, to have the conferences to which he is devoted in keeping the web free. I mean, his whole passion is not just that there should be a world wide web, but that it should not be taken over and dominated by commercial forces. Uh, and he sees that as an endless struggle, which can only be achieved by actually traveling and sitting in rooms with people and talking with them. So what he has over his shoulder is an overnight bag. So him with his overnight bag in this very informal denim uh, jacket that he wears most of the time is exactly the Berners-Lee that, uh, in a sense, is carrying out not just his invention, uh, 
but his present work. Those of you who will see it, have seen it, will have noted perhaps there's a very particular puzzle, which is why the sculptor hasn't put in any shoelaces. Um, the trustees were rather puzzled by that. But in the end, I think it was an example of where that question of likeness, it's not, it is a good likeness of Berners-Lee, but the question of the close likeness is much less important than the question of the positioning, the pose, the symbol, the, the effect of the portrait itself, how and what you're seeing overall. And I think it's that that we come back to when we think about painted portraits in particular. So let me now move to my third section and allow us to think rather particularly about painted portraiture. And of course, what you've got, if you like, is the master of painted portraiture, uh, Lucian Freud. You've got Lucian himself in what is, it's, it's actually a very small work. I shouldn't be enlarging it in quite this way. It's the one in the Portrait Gallery's collection from 63. Very, very intense, cross, vivid brush strokes, uh, vividly applied, vividly uh, available to us to feel. You almost feel, as, as happens in other Freud works, that the way the paint has been pushed, positioned, taken around the canvas is a sort of set of physical movements that we can still perceive, that the final uh, painting allows us to see a process and that that process of making is in the work itself. Uh, perhaps as a Small digression, I should mention that my colleagues, uh, former colleagues at the Portrait Gallery, have just put on a display which is based on archival material of Freud's, which has now come to the Portrait Gallery archivers in lieu of a state duty. Um, sketchbooks, notes, uh, really wonderful things. Um, and it gives you particularly some very, very interesting insight into the way in which Freud made some of his portraits, he often um, started from the bridge of the nose and the inside of the eyes, just the closest point of two eyes and the bridge of the nose, and then worked outwards. Uh, and you can see some of that. There's an unfinished self-portrait there, um, not previously uh, exhibited, uh, and then some sketchbooks and notes, really worth seeing. But I think what I wanted to show here was this question that we can think about which is about how portrait painting in particular has the vivid sense of process and life. It's not to take anything away from photographic portraiture, from digital portraiture, from all other kinds, from sculpted, but it's the particularity of paint. It's the particularity of color, tone, shade, and the sense of time and process that we can think about. And if we look here at one of the most famous of all of Lucian Freud's great portraits. Now, of course, we're back into that question of whether this is a private portrait or whether this is a public portrait. Uh, Freud, exactly like Hockney, was never somebody for commissions. Um, there are a few portraits that he carried out, uh, one of Jacob Rothschild, uh, one of Baron Thiessen, which are kind of the nearest to commissions. I mean, they were not formal commissions. Um, of course, there's a famous portrait of his bookmaker, 
which was almost certainly carried out uh, in lieu of things unpaid. Now, whether you call that a commission, I don't know. But so there were portraits by Freud in which I suppose there were one saying there were other relationships other than just uh, interest or affection for uh, interest in the subject or affection for the subject. Um, and the so-called Big Sue, uh, who's the subject here, was somebody, as you'll know, that, that Lucien uh, had got to know. Um, she interested him, if you like, probably because she had a double life as a benefit. She was a benefit supervisor um, daytime. Um, but she was also a great nightclubber uh, at night, and she was part of a much more sort of hedonistic seen at night, and the fact that Lucien Freud worked at night uh, was something that was probably very suitable for finding a way of spending time with her and having sessions uh, in which she could, as is well known, with Freud subjects, uh, they were booked in slots uh, and someone was expected to come back for many, many, many sessions uh, to accomplish, and certainly in a large scale, very, very large scale painting that this is. With it, of course, some things are tested. How do we look at nakedness? How do we look at the body? How do we look at particular bodies? How do we feel about someone else's body? How does someone else feel about their body uh, being presented in such a public form? Uh, I have to say, the subject in this case, uh, I think certainly by the time we did Lucian Freud's great portrait exhibition, sadly, when he was no longer alive in 2012 for the Olympic year. But Sue um, was with us quite often and had become completely uh, used to talking about sitting or posing for Lucian Freud and very good about talking about something too that really mattered, which was what was going to be the relationship of her place, not just, if you like, physically, but also socially and economically. Um, she was one of the very few people that Lucien uh, actually paid for the sittings. And he was aware that that was actually rather important because by the time he was painting her, he was going to end up, as he did, selling this painting for a considerable amount of money. And then, of course, famously it changed hands uh, later on for some 18 million, and it's changed hands since for much, much higher prices than that. And I think for her, she had to find a way of knowing that she was going to be portrayed by a famous artist who would turn her into a distant subject, perhaps, but also, however intimate, also distant, and also into a great painting that would live in another way and live in another terms of value, would, would live in a value exchange of which she would have no, have no part. Of course, as always with Lucian Freud, you get the sense that whatever is, seems casual, the sofa, the fabric, um, the arrangement of things um, can seem very casual, but of course is very closely thought through, very closely worked, and very closely considered in the textures uh, alongside the flesh. One of the things that pleased me a great deal with the 2012 exhibition and it was the most successful exhibition the National Portrait Gallery has ever staged in terms of numbers of visitors, was that many people had said to me, oh, 
I can't, I can't bear that flesh. I can't bear that sense of Freud's flesh. Ugh. And I thought, we have to find a way of, of allowing people to feel that. But maybe, maybe, to maybe move beyond just that sort of visceral concern or feeling about the flesh, if you like to get from the flesh to the person, that's what I was really after. And uh, I have to say, there was a, it was an exhibition, um, not the only exhibition in which people were crying, but it was an exhibition in which there was more uh, emotive, emotional reaction uh, than really any other I could, I could consider. So let's make a couple of contrasts then in thinking about painting in portraiture. And this is Alessandra Rajo's uh, commissioned portrait of Judy Dench, commissioned again for the Portrait Gallery collection, commissioned again through the trustees deciding upon uh, the subject, and then thinking about the artist being, if you like, my duty uh, with, as it was in many years, Sarah Howgate, contemporary curator. And we would often bring together a subject and an artist for a first meeting and a first discussion over a cup of tea. And we would hope that they would form some beginnings of a relationship. In the case of Judy Dench, it was obvious that she was fantastically busy. That was true of many subjects. She had very little time. But she gave Alessandro a very good long session in her studio. He took many, many photographs. What you're seeing now is a beautifully worked oil painting on linen and in very, very close layers, glazes of thin layers of paint. But what was intriguing to me was that the pose came about from Alessandro, the artist, remembering how the subject, Judy Dench, how she had been standing when he first saw her. So this is her actually standing, if you like, in the main hall, the Ondaatje Wing main hall of the portrait gallery, waiting until they would get together and have tea. Um, it's known colloquially in the portrait gallery as the bus stop portrait. And that idea of the bus stop perhaps does encapsulate something rather particular, of course, for actors. I mean, portraying actors is curiously difficult because they're not anybody, or rather they are not anybody, they are everybody. They spend their whole professional life brilliantly being other people. So somebody who has the professional skill to be someone else, and many other people, is arguably particularly hard to pin down as themselves. And I felt that Alessandro wonderfully caught a Judy Dench that was at the bus stop, just her. When we um, unveiled it, there was a nice moment of exchange of words, and I said something uh, about her achievements. And she said she was very pleased, and in particular, she said two things she thought were important to note. One was that she felt she'd been in many rooms in which there were men on the walls looking down. And that was okay, but she sort of felt surrounded by men on the walls, and now, she would greatly enjoy being on the wall and looking down on other people. And then she said that actually, this is a very large scale painting, actually the painting ought to have a sort of yellow warning sign in the corner saying, not to scale. <laughs> Rather in contrast, 
a bold but not as large, a portrait by Ishbel Myerskow uh, of the great Tanner Willard White. He was a subject who avoided me, if you like, for some time. It took about a year to get him to come for a meeting. And when I said, Willard, it's wonderful, we're talking, but why did you stay away? He said, oh, I couldn't imagine myself on the walls of the portrait gallery. Uh, and I said, well, what changed? He said, oh, my friends found out that you'd asked. And they ganged up on me, and they said, Willard, this isn't for you. This is for the rest of us. And he had understood that, and of course, he is an extraordinary story of someone born in very, very, very modest circumstances in the West Indies with an extraordinary voice, is heard by a scout from the Juilliard School, is taken to New York, is listened to, and then given every scholarship and support and becomes one of the great tenors working in the world. What I loved was that Ishbal was completely fascinated by his voice, as was I when I met him, or have been. Um, but she decided that it needed something bold, and she never told him about the background color. <laughs> so that when he first saw this, there was a certain amount of shock. Um, and just again by comparison, here is a portrait, if you like, in the other way around, that not far from being commissioned, it was created by Marlene Dumas after Amy Winehouse had died and after her sad, sad demise. Um, like many artists, um, she was considering um, what she felt about Amy Winehouse and she found images, she just drew them, on, I think, off the web, photographic images, and just worked up an idea. And she made several versions. There's, there's an Amy, uh, sorry, there's, a, there's a, uh, Amy, Amy, Amy Pink, as well as Amy Blue. And when I first saw this, I thought it, it's quite modest in scale and um, very enlarged here. I thought it was very telling and very beautiful. And, but I had to convince the trustees that we should think about it because it, it's a memorial portrait, it's not from life. And the, the basis of the portraits in the portrait gallery is that in the collection is that they are from life. But what I knew was that, of course, there are a few portraits that are not from life. Uh, tellingly, uh, the portrait of John Keats uh, was made by his great companion, Joseph Seven, after he died. You'll note, it's, he's, sitting in, he's seen sitting in his house um, near Hampstead, near Highgate, and with his sort of famous pose of reading with two chairs, uh, leaning against another chair. It's entirely from memory um, by Seven. So that idea of memory portraits, memorial portraits, actually has a certain history. Um, and of course, it's something else. It's a devotional portrait. It's about devotion. Uh, and that has other connotations. Um, the trustees were convinced. We had to raise some money. Marlene Dumas, as you'll know, a very famous international artist. And just before we were about to unveil it, I suddenly thought, we haven't talked to the family. They don't know about this. Here's a great acquisition for the Portugal Gallery, and we haven't talked to her family. So I got in touch and uh, was able to meet with, in the end her mother couldn't come, but her father with uh, Mitch Winehouse. And he came into the gallery and we had out photographs from the photographs collection, and he was very, of course, knowledgeable about each image. He knew exactly when it had been taken. And then I was very nervous uh, about what he'd think. And uh, in the conservation studio, he looked over, looked at this, and said, oh, it's lovely. 
and my heart could, could beat again because something may be a public portrait. It may be in public, but it is still private as well. So let's finish by coming back to our man. So here is a favorite of mine, of course, which is Hockney's self-portrait uh, that actually we acquired after the portrait exhibition in 2006. And David allowed us to have a special price that matched the anniversary of the National Portrait Gallery, which we were celebrating that year, the 150th anniversary. Um, and it's Charlie Sheps, who's an old friend, uh, colleague of David's, um, worked in and around the studio over many years in the background. But what I like, it's hard to see on the slide, but it's, what I really like is that it's a portrait of, of short-sightedness. Um, what you see when you see it close on the actual portrait is that actually Hockney is slightly squinting because he's squinting in and over his glasses. He's using his glasses to look at uh, what's on the canvas, um, but he's then looking over his glasses to look back at Charlie behind him. So I love that sense of the lens being a play against his own interest in lenses and his own interest in looking. And thinking about those different viewpoints between the subject, between the artist, that play between uh, subject and artist, which we then interpret as the viewer. That's always uh, the triangle. And of course, finally, to finish, we have to be back with Celia. Uh, others will talk about the great sequence upstairs. I think it's magnificent. I think it's astonishing that Hockney, at this moment, at this age, can take on his own project all over again about portraiture. Um, there's a nice story, really, between the Portrait Gallery and the Royal Academy, which is that um, when we were making the great exhibition of his portraits in 2006, in the last six months before it, I began to realize that he'd sort of lost interest. And actually what was emerging was that he was getting completely riveted by landscapes. And of course, <laughs> totally beginning to get back into Yorkshire. And when the great exhibition happened here of the Yorkshire landscapes, I remember to saying to Charles Summary Smith as uh, director here and chief executive and secretary, I said, Charles, has that been all right all the way through? He said, you know what? You know what? He's got bored with landscape again. He's, th he's thinking about portraits. So actually, I think this is an eternal swapping for Hockney between landscape and portraiture. I'd like to think that portraiture's really at the center of it. Celia has to be the eternal subject. These are portraits of such poise. Whatever we think of the likenesses, whatever we think of, of, of the look of them, it's the poise, it's the figures, it's that determination that for me is brilliant. And Hockney, amidst these other forms I've shown you, is a great innovator. And the fact that he innovates with traditional forms as well as contemporary forms is just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.